Season 2 of The Next Unicorns is brought to you by Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important lines of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off by using offer code twist. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at linkedin.com slash unicorn. And Gusto. Running a startup is hard work, but thankfully, Gusto makes payroll easy. They also offer flexible benefits, onboarding, and so much more. Twist listeners get three months free at gusto.com slash twist. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Startups. I'm your host, Jason Calacanis. And here we are. It's month six of the pandemic. And we are not slowing down. We are continuing to run the podcast. We are continuing to invest in startup companies because we believe this is our civic duty. Entrepreneurship and creating jobs is going to be critically important over the next two or three years. And jobs are created not by politicians, not by NGOs, not by wishful thinking, not by retweeting, not by virtual signaling. No, jobs are created by founders, founders who start companies and then create opportunities for people to have high paying jobs, uh, job security, and hopefully equity in those companies to create wealth and have people live the American dream. This is one of the things that concerns me in the world is that many Americans have given up on capitalism and the American dream. They have good reason to. I understand. They feel that the system is rigged. They see Jeff Bezos become worth a ton of money and they think it's unfair and they see headlines that because the stock went up today, he made $10 billion in a day or something, which is, you know, just in- factually incorrect. But uh, sure, I'll let people have it. Uh, it. It does make people uh feel the system is rigged i get that but what you have to understand if you're hearing my voice and you're listening to this startup i am giving you permission to take risk i'm giving you permission to start a company i'm giving you permission to get rich get powerful and to change the world and guess what you don't need anybody's permission let alone mine to do this in america we still have an open playing field is it fair no is the opportunity equally distributed of course not uh can you hit bad beats can you have bad luck can you have started uh, you know, on third base with a trust fund, of course, all these things can be simultaneously true. But you can change the world with just two or three of your friends accumulating some goddamn skills on all these free services out there and then taking those goddamn skills and having the chutzpah to start a company and see if you too can change the world. And guess what? 70% chance of failure, which means if you do it three or four times, you're guaranteed, in my mind to have some level of success. That's my rant. Let's get back to the program. We have been doing this Next Unicorn series um, pretty consistently now, and we challenge ourselves to look for companies that we think have the potential to become a unicorn. What's a unicorn, you ask? Uh, that's a company that is valued at a billion dollars. For a company to be valued at a billion dollars, they need to have about 50 to $100 million in top-line revenue. And a high-growth startup would get credit for 10 to 20 times top-line revenue maybe 50 or 100 times their bottom line. So if you had 10 million in profits on your 50 million, you might get 100 times that and then have a value of your company of $1 billion. Why does this matter? It doesn't. It's just a uh, benchmark. It's just some goalposts that people uh, 
randomly put out there and it stuck because billion dollar companies tend to not be a fluke. And so what we've challenged ourselves to do in this series is find what we think will be the next unicorns, the Sunicorns. Uh, and we've had an amazing run with this series. Uh, some people really love the episode um, with Zero Mass Water, episode 1102. Definitely worth checking out. Other people really love David from Degreed or Ben from Caffeine or Nikki from Homebound or Daphne from in Citro and formerly Coursera, speaking of education and adding to your skill set. So it's been a great season. And today will be no different. Uh, I first heard about Loom uh, a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, when salespeople started to send me instead of emails uh, saying, you know, email threads where, you know, hey, can we show you our SaaS product? They started sending me Looms of their startup decks where they would present their company and put a little circle with a video in it. And I said, well, this is super compelling. Uh, it's a video pitch made just for me. And you didn't ask if you could pitch me, you just sent me a video. I thought that's pretty interesting. Uh, and the CEO and co-founder of Loom is Joe Thomas. And he joins us here today on This Week in Startups. Hey, Joe, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Jason. Thanks for having me. Uh, and where are you right now in the world? Looks like you're I in Cape Cod based on that wainscoting behind you. You're in well, Cape Cod, I'm you're on the Cape? I've stayed in the Bay, actually. Stayed um, in the Bay. I, one of the holdouts. Uh, and it has been uh, pretty disastrous here in the Bay Area for the last couple of weeks. Are you in the city or are you in the, the larger peninsula area? I'm in the city. I'm in Russian Hill. Explain to people what life was like in the heart of San Francisco in, let's say, the fall of 2019 versus what it's like now at the start of the fall in 2020. It's really interesting to watch the evolution of San Francisco because there, there have been good and bad things actually that I've, I've uh, shared with my wife who I'm in the startup tech scene. So this is the best place in the world for me to be. I still believe that to be the case. Um, but my wife is in fashion, which there isn't a super vibrant community here in San Francisco on that front. So I've had to find the silver linings. And in the fall, let's just say September, uh, it's a beautiful time of year in San Francisco. I got to walk to and from work every single day. It was a 1.2 mile walk. I brought my dog to the office every single day. We had now at that point, 25 people that would go into the office. And so it was a really great time for Loom. It was a great time for myself as an individual. Uh, but then as February and March rolled around and things started to change in a very material way, uh, work from home became a thing. And what's interesting is that I personally uh, am a big believer in having an office presence. And I really like having that separation of home and work. And things changed pretty drastically as a result of COVID. So, you know, I could go into that, but I, you asked me about fall of 2019 and I, yeah. I felt like it was. And what is, so you have this perfect life. Things are going great. You're walking to your office. There's a camaraderie and esprit de corpse in the office. And now everybody's at home. Um, assuming you've been sheltering in place and maybe not taking a lot of risk in going out, although you seem like you're kind of a young guy. You're probably in your, your 30 or 35 or something, I take a guess. Yeah, 30. You're 30. And so you want to get out and live your life. You have very low risk. How, how have you managed that risk and, you know, going back out and being social? And do you feel like for young people, you know, let's say under the age of 50, 
you should be allowed to just go back to the office and take tests and wear masks and socially distance. And are you frustrated by all of this? Because it seems like your chances as a 30 year old of, you know, having a bad outcome with Corona are extremely, extremely low, yet you're being asked to shelter in place and to, you know, not run your company as you would like to, which is in person. Yeah, I mean, one of the perspective changes that I've actually had, and to be clear, we have a uh, remote first cultural value. So we actually ran a survey when we were five people in a San Francisco apartment. And we learned that 80% of our professional power users were using it to communicate with those that they don't have uh, shared office space with. So you had mentioned talking about your customers, the users of our product. Yes. Yes. And so And so uh, those salespeople that are reaching out to Jason to sell them their services, you don't see each other in person. And that was true for internal communication as well. So we were actually really powerful for distributed teams. And so the next five hires we made were all remote in nature. And what's been interesting for myself personally in terms of sheltering in place and working from home, I actually love the ability to work from home as CEO and maybe do it for like two, three, four days out of the week because it just allows for a much more flexible lifestyle than compared to September where I was a little bit anti-remote. So I've actually come around to this uh, power to the people, flexibility is everything. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm gung-ho and want to take extra risk and we've done and followed the leads of, you know, the Googles and Facebooks of the world that said it's at least until July uh, 2021, but, you know, could be in perpetuity that you can work from home and it's really up to you. And so I I think from a risk profile perspective and to answer that question more directly, I've I've tried to do my part in society, which is actually minimizing the spread. And so you have your quarantine, you hang out with a certain group of individuals and you actually minimize your kind of like seeing people as much as possible. And when you do meet up, you do it outside. So um, I'm trying to do my part as society. I'm trying to do it for as long as we need to until a vaccine comes. And so I'm not racing to get back to the office. And and you see a world where now that you've seen your company succeed remote first and work from home, you see a world where you move to a hybrid where maybe people come to the office two or three days a week and work from home two or three days a week. Is that what I'm hearing in your your go back to work plan? So... We've always been that way, actually. So we are that five people in San Francisco apartment. The next five hires we made were all remote. And we've actually So it's not a big jump for you, yeah. No, no. We were actually, when we decided to go full-time remote, we had done things like remote week, where every other month we would spend an entire week remote. Nobody was allowed to be in office. And so when we actually transitioned into full-time remote, it was relatively easy because all of our communication principles and practices, you know, we learned from organizations like GitLab about what remote first asynchronous communication uh, best in class looks like. And it's also part of the change that we're enabling in the world. So important for us to dog through that. When we get back from this quick break, I want to talk about that change and how while most uh, companies were really scared of what would happen during the pandemic, I think you're one of the lucky companies that your product became more valuable when a larger number of people went to work from home, obviously doing screen captures and explaining things is a lot easier uh, on Loom and doing a screencast, uh, second only to probably doing it in person. And when you do it in person, you don't have the archive of it, so it's not documented. So exactly. there's a double benefit to using a Loom. When we get back, I want to understand how your business has grown through the pandemic and then what uh, Loom actually is and, and who what the use cases are when we get back on the Sweden service. You need business insurance for your startup. Without insurance, you failed one of the earliest tests of properly running your company. 
You know some of the examples. I'm going to walk you through them right now because I do this when I'm a board member of every single company and I see people make every mistake you can imagine. And one of the biggest mistakes is not having insurance for when you make mistakes like cyber insurance in case you get hacked. How many companies do you know? How many of your peers who are founders have been hacked? What about directors and officers insurance in case somebody does something stupid and you get sued in your company? You want to make sure your board of directors and the officers, i.e. the top executives of the company, that they have insurance to pay for lawyers, to make sure you're defended properly. And there's E&O insurance, which covers errors and omissions. When you're scaling, you need to have E&O. And a lot of big customers are going to ask you, do you have cyber? Do you have D&O? Do you have E&O? And of course, there's employment practices liability. That's EPL. And that covers bad stuff like harassment and wrongful termination. And a broker's technology saves you time and money. The prices are up to 20% lower and they give you better coverage. And you go from sign up to quote and a purchase in just 10 minutes, as opposed to dealing with large slow incumbents in the insurance space who take weeks to get you quotes and you, and you don't even know if you're getting a good deal. The process at a broker is transparent and there's none of that opaque pricing. Here's your call to action to instantly buy custom-built insurance for startups. And that's the important part here. This is for startups. Go to imbroker.com slash twist. E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. What a great name. Imbroker.com slash twist. And while you're there, you're going to get an extra 10% off, which is very generous of them. Thank you for that. By using the offer code twist. That's right. You go to imbroker.com slash twist and you get 10% off. And if you've been ignoring this for two or three years, it's time to stop what you're doing, put it at the top of your punch list and go to imbroker.com slash twist. Use that code twist to get another 10% off. Thanks to Imbroker for supporting independent media like this week in startups. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back. It's the next unicorn series, our Soonicorn series. Joe Thomas, co-founder and CEO of Loom is with us. If you don't know what Loom is, you can go to loom.com and download it right now. I, I think my best description of Loom is it's a Chrome extension that lets you create a screencast where you can walk through a deck, walk through a website, uh, and show people something with your little circle of video, uh, picture in a picture, saved, and you don't have to then do any video post-production. It just makes that screencast for you and lets you send it to somebody very quickly and effortlessly. And then the audience for this is either people doing training pitching something that's in a deck, which could be a salesperson or a corporate partnership or even a fundraising process. Did I describe the product correctly? The way that we talk about it is actually it's video messaging for work. And we're on all platforms desktop related at this point. So we got Chrome extension, we have a PC app, we have a Mac app. And really the reason why we're bringing video messaging to work is because it combines the expressiveness of video, like seeing somebody's face and hearing their voice is much more powerful than reading a plain text message. And it can be more efficient and effective from an information exchange perspective. So um, the efficiency Do you need is to get that doorbell? I'm, I'm so, so sorry. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Well, we'll, well this will be a funny moment in the work from home episode. All right. So you got your uh, good eggs delivery. So you pitch it as video messaging as opposed to the way I perceive it, which is screencasts, um, explain to me that difference. Cause if I remember correctly, the initial positioning was more like doing these screencasts, correct? Or am I wrong? Has it always been video messaging? And then what's, what does that mean in terms of practical differences of how people use the product? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent right now and might be sure, relevant to the That's early stage 
companies that are building out their marketing is that when you're actually creating a new behavior in the workplace or new behavior in general, you have to be very utilitarian and direct about what it is functionally that your software provides. So in the earliest days, we described Loom as a screen recorder that layers on your camera bubble and audio and makes it instantaneous for you to share videos. So right when you're done recording, we had a uh, patent on our infrastructure. You click that done recording button, it pops open a new web page, you grab that link and you share it. And that's how we marketed it to the world. But now that we're about four years into this and that it's less about Am I going to use video messaging at work and more around what should I be using it for? So people are already leaning in. You can actually go more aspirational from a marketing perspective. So that's where we start to get into video messaging. And because it's more expressive and it's more efficient, it's less functional in our marketing and more uh, aspirational in nature. So that's how we've kind of evolved the marketing over time. And the key innovation here is that ability to do the picture in picture on the screencast. So you could say, hey, uh, I did this recently with our marketing department. I was like, here's how I want you to, I'm going to walk you through how I want you to interact with people from the This Week in Startups account. Uh, go ahead and follow them or you know, then go find them on LinkedIn and follow them. And then I want you to uh, reply to one of their tweets. I want you to thank them. I want you to DM them and ask them if they want a t-shirt or a mug to This Week in Startups. And by doing that, instead of just typing it into Slack, I make a video, I drag and drop the video over into the Slack room and I say, hey, watch this video. Then we put the video on the Notion page and now we have it for all time. If you join the company or leave the company, my instructions on how to behave on social media has been saved in that loom. That documenting process is once you've got the cognitive overhead and figured out of how to make a loom uh, or to make any kind of screencast, boy, does it become second nature, correct? That's the behavior of trying to get people to embrace is documenting everything? Absolutely. I think it's about knowledge transfer, right? So when you think about the different ways that you exchange information with others throughout the course of the day, you have you know, video conferencing, what we're doing right now, but that's, as you already highlighted, ephemeral in nature. Uh, you have plain text messages being email or Slack messages. And then you have your plain text write-ups where it's a Google Doc or a Notion document. Um, all yeah. of these things are really great ways of exchanging information. But when you can bring the expressiveness of video and the relative ease of documenting something complex in nature, and then putting that and making it available to individuals, because you know part of the innovation, huge shout out to my technical co-founder, Vinay, of the instantaneous availability. Like when you record something, it's actually we're competing with your ability to start typing a message when your understanding is that you can record something actually faster than it is to type up a message. That's when you start to use Loom as second nature. So that cognitive overhead is actually largely associated with uh do you believe it's more efficient than typing up a message? And can you see yourself on screen in that little camera bubble at the same time uh, without being too distracted by it? But especially in this shelter-in-place world where people are working from home and on video conferencing all day, they've gotten used to that. That's become the biggest lift to your business, I would assume, is that at home, people didn't even have their webcams plugged in or they didn't have a lighting set up. And now here we are in month six of working from home. Everybody has bought a proper microphone, a proper microphone stand, a nice camera, or they've at least figured out how to have a quiet room with Ethernet and, and make their streaming work. So you benefit from that sea change that Zoom and others 
and work from home were uh, pushing, correct? Yes, that is absolutely right. I mean, we, I, I believe that it was more about the fact that you were having to communicate with people that you don't share wall space with. That was the primary benefit versus the actual hardware itself. I mean, it, it's the evolution of technology. One of our bets was that the cameras within laptops would actually become natively better um, versus like having to buy and they an have. external camera. Become- they have. Absolutely. Um, But the the key benefit was actually less about the home setup and more about the fact that you have to communicate with people that you're not sitting right next to. That that's where Loom becomes disproportionately valuable. If your business was at X percent in February, let's say 100% of your business in February, what percentage were you at by August, let's say September? Did you grow 50%, 100% since the pandemic hit? And how what was the increase in growth? when people started to shelter in place and work from home? Yeah, this was, I mean, we were incredibly fortunate because some other industries like travel and hospitality were hammered at the beginning. Yeah, went of, to zero. Yeah. Went to zero, yeah. Um, we were fortunate to be um, the, the opposite, to be have an order of magnitude increase of engagement on a platform. And that's as measured by the number of video views that were happening on a weekly or monthly basis. And that happened over the course of three weeks, which in a in and of itself, it's kind of a crisis because if our infrastructure Wait, wasn't... in three weeks, the number of videos doubled, you're saying? Uh, we had our video views over the course of three weeks was up by 10x. 10x? Yes. In three weeks, you went 10x, which could cause server problems or other oh, yeah. issues. And they did. And, uh, also and they our, did. And our support staff was not... Like, we didn't have enough folks on that front. And so like, there, we had to do s- similar things to zoom at the beginning of this which is that you know you shut down feature build out and you just focus on making sure that the system is up and running for our user base so if you went 10x in the first three weeks where's the business today six months later did you did you maintain that kind of pace and did you go a thousand x in the last six months or a hundred x in terms of loom views what's you can be honest with us about the numbers it's okay Only two hundred thousand people listening. <laughs> What's beautiful about Loom is the inherent virality of it. So, in order to get value, you have to take that link and share it with somebody else. It brings them into our ecosystem, and so you know we've yeah. seen continued growth from that initial pop. I mean, it, it hasn't been ten uh, x over the course of three weeks, like since March. Yeah. Um, definitely not. But we we we're definitely pretty far into the future from where our model was projecting us to be. Got it. And so revenue is way up. And that feels a little weird to be in a pandemic, uh, maybe even feel a little guilty, as I kind of inferred from like, hey, you're watching restaurants go to zero, travel go to zero, and here your business is doubling or tripling every couple of months. It's it's a little bit of a weird feeling, yeah? Yeah. And so when we were actually, we knew that because when we looked at our user numbers at the beginning of this year, when certain countries were actually being impacted by it before the, the US, which has about 65% of our user base is still US based. Um, but we did have users in China. We do have users in South Korea. We have users in Italy. And so when we isolated our user cohorts to those countries, we saw that order of magnitude wow. increase on our platform. And so what we did was we said, if Loom can be disproportionately valuable to people who are trying to navigate this work from home situation, what can we do that's very simply the right thing? And so we actually looked at our pricing and packaging model and we removed the limits on our free tier. It was 25 users per or 25 videos per user. We made that unlimited. 
we took the price of our pro tier and we cut it in half from $10 to $5. And then we made our pro tier free for all of education, for nonprofits, uh, and for those that were reaching out that their businesses were materially impacted by COVID. And so it was a uh, so that's a nice that's a nice thing to do when you're benefiting in a pandemic and you could have that like weird feeling, um, which I've I've had talks with a lot of founders about that weird feeling. You can also go do good in the world, right? And you can go yes. try to help people. When we get back from this quick break, I want to ask you the stupid question a lot of VCs ask you, uh, <laughs> and that you must have gotten incessantly, which is um, you know, how is this business defensible when people have replicated Loom's business, uh, you know, dozens of times, there's many competitors and copycats of your product. Uh, I used one recently on my windows machine, like some snag it or something. Uh, cause I was making a video cast and I, um, it just happened to somebody happened to recommend it to me and I tried it. How is this business defensible? And how do you answer that question when VCs ask it when we get back on This Week in Startups? Let's get down to brass tacks. LinkedIn Jobs is going to give you 50 bucks right now because you listen to this podcast. That's $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions, of course, apply because they're giving you the $50. But we get so many great testimonials from you, the loyal This Week in Startups audience. You tell us all the time about how you find perfect hires using LinkedIn. And one of our uh, founders who listens to this podcast, Jay, is with a company called 10 Golden Rules. It's a boutique digital marketing agency. And, and he just needed another account manager. Sometimes your business is growing, you need an account manager. You need somebody to manage all of these fabulous accounts and things are going well for Jay over at 10 Golden Rules. And after he identified his two top targets, Jay noticed, oh, LinkedIn, yum, yum. He's got a mutual connection. You know what that means? You can do a quick reference check. And that's what Jay did. And then Jay was able to hire a great account manager over Zoom through the power of LinkedIn. And you know that power that LinkedIn has because they have over 690 million members across the world. I mean, it is the standard. If you want to find great people, you just go to LinkedIn. You know it. And they screen all the candidates for the hard and the soft skills you're looking for while putting your job post in front of the most qualified members every day. They get that repetition and they're looking for jobs like yours. And sometimes you might even get a passive job seeker. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn. You're listening to the next unicorns. You're getting 50 bucks off. 5-0. Fitty. From your boy, J. Cal, and from our friends at LinkedIn, just go to linkedin.com slash unicorn and get that $50 off your first job posting terms and conditions apply because they're going to give you $50 for just typing in this URL, linkedin.com. It's already in your browser cache. You know, linkedin.com is in there. All you got to do is put a slash unicorn at the end and then you get the 50 bucks. That easy. All right, let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's the next unicorn series. This is our ninth of 10th. Um... Next unicorns, unicorns, and Loom is definitely in that cohort, having raised from some of the great venture capitalists uh, of all time, Sequoia, who co-led the last round. And then, uh, you know, new seed investors, our friends at KOTU, C-O-A-T-U-E. They're some sort of giant hedge fund that then decided to, for some crazy reason, to give like six or $700 million to Matt Mazio to go spend on seed stage investing. Uh, <laughs> but Matt is the one who did your deal, correct, Joe? Is that right? Am I right? That is correct. We work with Matt, we work with Lucas Swisher, and then we work with Thomas LaFont, who's one of the co-founders of KOTU. The big KOTU, like the overall giant KOTU, the hedge fund or something, right? There's some sort of hedge fund? 
Yeah, yes. So they started out as a hedge fund, uh, New York based, but then Thomas uh, came out and he's actually running the VC arm of Co2 for the most part. And his brother uh, runs the, the hedge fund side of the business. Got it. This is what always happens with these hedgies, these hedge fund cats. They like, they start buying up these big assets and then they start looking at the emerging ones and they're like, wait a second, we just bought this thing for 2 billion and we can put 50 million into 40 companies. Well, we're going to become pickers. And we'll see if they can pick. Uh, they seem to have picked a good one in Loom. Um, obviously, I know the answer to this, but I thought as a uh, service to the founders, the new founders, Joe, who are listening, you're going to get this question about defensibility all the time. I could give the stock answer for you, but I want to hear how you answer it. Uh, so here comes Jerk Jason. I'm going to. I'm a partner at some <laughs> Jerk uh, Ventures, and uh, hey, so Joe. Uh, you know, uh, I saw there's 72 competitors and there were three in the last Y Combinator class and the Techstars class had one. And, uh, you know, they're, they're valued at 5 million and, uh, or 10 million. And I could own 20% of that business. And like, they said they have a better product than you and they're going to make it free. So how is this defensible? Go ahead, Joe. <laughs> You're talking to dipshit jerk Jason VC. How do you, <laughs> how do you defend your existence versus competitors? Oh, man. I mean, this is, What's this the best is practice here. It's been a fun question to answer over the course of time, too, because, you know, you get different flavors of it. In the earliest days, it was truly like, why doesn't this product exist? And why isn't somebody like a Zoom or a Slack going to build this in-house ah. themselves? Um, and so to how I always answered it is the fact that you have to believe. And what I think we did a really good job of is picking early investors that believe that this is a missing mode of communication at work. Right? Like this is a massive opportunity. And in order to get this right, you just have to focus on building a best in class product. And that takes disproportionate resource allocation to our video infrastructure is the most performant that exists for any asynchronous video recording and sharing. And then the second part of defensibility, if you have a best in class product, is you need to build a best in class brand around the product as well. So do, do folks look to you as being the thought leaders and uh, the, the next kind of brand to trust. And then the third part of this is there could be death by thousand paper cuts, but usually there's one or two winners in a space. And the one or two winners, particularly in B2B SaaS, are those that can serve the larger organizations. And so if we can be the market creators and market leaders in this space, then we can start to grab the biggest, um, the biggest customers in the world. And as long as you grab those, there's pretty high switching costs. Like the, it has to be a 10x better solution for a new entry to come in and steal the material market share from Loom. And so the question that we had to answer was less about kind of like the small upstarts that are copying us, uh, which now we've kind of created an ecosystem below us that there will probably be more and more over time and more about how do we make sure that we're not just a feature and that we're truly a product uh, and independent business. So if I can translate, the needs of an individual user, like you needed to make a one-off video and you downloaded Snagit because you typed in screen recorder and capture and they bought the first Google AdWords and they you know paid six bucks for that user <laughs> to acquire them. That's not the same use case as, I don't know, Palantir or, um, you know, uh, let's pick another company that's not as charged, but, you know, GE needs to create looms for education across all these different groups and they have 7,000 employees who could potentially use it. They have a different need and 
you're servicing that need, which is to organize and to authenticate and to protect 7,000 users making 10 videos a month, 70,000 videos and a million videos over a year with 100 million views, correct? Absolutely. Yes. So I, I think that this is where, you know, that inherent virality that I touched on too is really defensible in comparison to the Snagit to the world too, where, you know, you take a link and you share it with somebody else as a result of creating that content, it pulls you into the Loom ecosystem. So we're actually able to, like from a unit economics perspective, spread within organizations much, much faster because to date, we still haven't spent a, a cent on paid marketing and we're growing oh, faster really? than we ever have before. Yeah. So you're not marketing your service. Your customers are doing it because every time they send a Loom video, it's from a loom.com URL. Is that right? Or yes. it has the Loom logo on it or people can check to take the Loom logo off. How does that work? How do you so think we, about that in terms of virality? Yep. We've actually, we believe that video messaging is really valuable to any existing workflow that you have. So whether it is sharing it in a Notion document, or whether it's a Jira ticket that you created to document a bug, or whether it's a salesperson who records and sends a video to somebody else, like we, that is how we actually spread across organizations is that they take a link and they share it to somebody else. And if they're curious enough, then they'll click through to the They'll click through to the video and th that'll be yeah. in the Loom Do you need system. to get that Good Eggs or Uber Eats? Is that your <laughs> Belcampo Uber Eats burger? <laughs> my, my wife got it. And this is, it's no funny problem. because she's, she works in fashion and as a result of it, she actually fits garments. And so we actually ah. get multiple deliveries per day. So that way wow. she can actually fit those garments and she happens to, to be, um, uh, the pattern maker. So it's like really important that <laughs> she gets these dozen garments a day. So I'm really sorry about the doorbell yeah. ringing. Oh, no, I think we, we are here in the, you know, month six of the pandemic and be working from home means the delight of a dog or a pet or a child or a doorbell. And I think we've all let our hair down a little bit in that regard. And it's kind of fun when it happens, right? Like, there was that famous CNBC where the kid came strutting in and dancing behind their parent and the father's like oh my god and the mom comes in and grabs and pulls the kid off now yes. it's just like when the ki my kids come in i'm just like hey say hi to everybody on the you know <laughs> this week in service book club and here's my dog yeah uh, so being put into a feature is your next issue uh most people don't know this but slack has built-in video and audio and it works pretty good and when i realized we had it and we're paying for it i started doing ad hoc calls when you're in um, a room on slack you can just press a button and it calls everybody who's a member of that room nobody even knows about this feature nobody uses it in our organizations i started using it and everybody's like yeah we'll set up a zoom and i'm like why are we setting up a zoom when it's already built into this why are we paying for zoom it's like oh well zoom is a category leader has these other features and there was a reason to keep it um so maybe i'm answering my own question here but what happens if Zoom or Slack or other folks incorporate this into the product? You sort of mentioned that's the next kind of VC question you're going to get. How do you avoid becoming a feature in other people's products? Yeah, I mean, I do think that you you highlighted a big part of it, which is having the best in class product is the most important thing. So um, for Loom, it's making it making sure that we have the most seamless, easy to use video messenger on the market. And we've continued to be that over the course of time, uh, but that takes constant maintenance. The other part of it though, that's really interesting is 
you know, Slack is used mostly for internal communication. They came out with shared channels. They're an investor of ours, which has been great. They've been amazing. Oh, that's fascinating. To, yeah, they, they actually, uh, there's three different videos that play in line. It's YouTube, Vimeo, and Loom. And it's because they actually built something for Loom. So that way it recognizes a Loom link. And so uh, we've worked really closely with them. If they were to build a video messenger in, in-house, like, you know, that, that would be something that we'd know about in advance. Um, the other side of it, though, is Zoom. You know, do they want to get into the knowledge documentation and sharing as a core part of their communication stack? And to me, I think that asynchronous communication is so fundamentally different from synchronous that building a communication and knowledge platform is, from what I understand, not something that they're interested in. They're doubling and tripling down in synchronous communication. They're getting in the the telephony space, like and spending more resources there. And so for Loom, um, I think that we are going to do things like continue to invest in the integrations that we have. Um, I had mentioned that we're disproportionately valuable. And so if Loom integrates really deeply and makes it as seamless as that Slack integration that I talked about, share Loom link in the Slack ecosystem and it expands by default, uh, I think that there's a really interesting defensibility. Yeah, I think that's why Slack isn't going anywhere. People are like, oh, you can use Discord or, you know, there's free Slack alternatives now. And I was like, yeah, but do they have that app store? And can you have your survey monkey type form, whatever pipe into RSS feeds? Like every time you put that stuff in, it's like building this like house and you're building this intricacy. And it's like, after you've furnished and dialed in your home and you've got everything dialed in, like, do you want to move again and start that process over again? Most people don't. When we get back from this quick break, I want to know how right. you got the Instagram founders to become investors in Loom. 2020 has proven to be the year of many things. And if you own a startup, this could be the year you switch to better payroll. Gusto wasn't just built for small businesses. It was built for the people behind them. The founders who listen to This Week in Startups. Their online payroll is so easy to use. Gusto can automatically calculate paychecks and file all of your payroll taxes. Three out of four customers say they run payroll in 10 minutes or less. I know this to be true because we run it in under 10 minutes ourselves, which means you'll have more time to run your business. Less drama, more time. It's super efficient. Plus, they offer unlimited payrolls for one monthly price. No hidden fees. Plus, Gusto does way more than payroll. Gusto also helps with time tracking, health insurance, your 401ks, onboarding, commuter benefits, offer letters, and they give you access to HR experts. And if you're moving from another provider, they can transfer all your data for you. It's no surprise 94% of customers are likely to recommend Gusto to a friend. Here's the best part. Because you're a listener to This Week in Startups, you get three months totally free. That's right. Three months for free. Just for listening to This Week in Startups, go to gusto.com, G-U-S-T-O.com slash twist, T-B-R-I-S-T. Again, that's gusto.com slash twist. I'm telling you, you're going to love it. Gusto, thanks for the help and support with the podcast and our payroll. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. Our guest today is Joe Thomas. He is with the Loom, loom.com. And uh, you got a really interesting group of investors, including... The Instagram founders, when did you get them and how did you get them as investors in your company? I think that uh, VCs and, and partners can be really great at identifying really great operators to join you on the cap table and join you on this journey. Mm-hmm. And so with respects to um, our Series B, Andrew Reid said that Kevin and Mikey are 
excellent in terms of angel investors that they do a relatively small volume of deals mm. uh, and that they spend a decent amount of time with folks and are hyper responsive. And so in terms of building out a visual communication platform, uh, they built it for consumer, obviously, and we're building it for the workplace that they could actually help us identify what are like the key cognitive and psychological mechanisms that can help create this behavior because they introduced uh, photo sharing to the world. And then also Instagram stories was a huge leap. And maybe they weren't necessarily the innovators on that front, but they actually made it mass market. And that's what we're trying to do. And what were do. those? What was their advice? Like, what are the things that have made it more natural for people? I'm curious. Like, I, I think that Mikey, um, in terms of talking to my technical co-founder, Vinay, and making sure that that magic feeling that's actually largely driven by under the hood technical innovation, like video is really, really hard medium to work with. And it takes constant vigilance. Um, uh, that has been a really interesting line of conversation. I think for Kevin and myself on the product side, we've actually talked more about kind of like product strategy and what are maybe mm. the next major steps that we want to take. So uh, maybe not the things that I can share openly right now, but yeah. I think that, you know, the, the original impetus when we were talking to them was like, how do we build visual communication into the workplace? Uh, but we've actually found that the core value that they deliver is more in the strategic and innovation side. Uh, so you did the KOTU round, which is your last Series B. Yep. Uh, that round started before the pandemic, during the pandemic. So when was that round getting going? Because I know you did the closing dinner under the pandemic, correct? <laughs> yes, we did um, that. So we had raised the Series B with Andrew and Sequoia in September of last year. Uh, this round we called B plus, um, but mm. it was at a, a different valuation was after the pandemic had started and we had started to see that order of magnitude shift in our analytics. And so we said, can we actually bring in a great new partner uh, that can help us take it to the next level, as well as inject some cash in order to move a little bit more aggressively as a result of being further ahead in our model than we originally predicted. So uh, when we went out to start raising that round of funding, that was in March. Um, and that was like late March. And then we closed it officially in May. So a pandemic hits, the world's in crisis, and people are scared. And you see, wow, everything is growing 10x in three weeks in terms of at least the number of views. And then eventually, I'm sure the number of users signing up, etc. Yeah. grows. And you decide, opportunistically, we should raise funding. Uh, and we should go to market. Does that mean you did this round and you raised it without doing in-person meetings? And then how many people did you email and say, hey, we're considering raising money because things are going? Did you email five people, 50 people? How did that fundraising process work, broad strokes, uh, in a pandemic? I mean, you, you know Silicon Valley. When you tell one person that you're fundraising, the whole ecosystem knows. <laughs> so yeah, we had, <laughs> it is weird. Yeah, we, we had told, um, we had talked to the board internally and just let them know that we were thinking about this. Uh, and then from there, we had been building relationships. I think one of the most important things for founders to do that I learned in the early days is be building relationships in between rounds. Do not try and like cold start any relationship when you're going out to raise a round. And so there was a short list of investors that we potentially wanted to work with. And it was starting to get to be uh, at the valuation that we were targeting in that kind of more growth stage investor territory. 
And so yeah. I had reached out to a shortlist. We did all of the meetings remote. I actually said it was by far the most efficient round that I've ever raised because I was actually able to get a material amount of work done during it because I wasn't running uh, around Sand Hill Road. I wasn't ballpark, running how many from office me- How many office. people, yeah, ballpark, how many, how many targets did you start with? How many meetings did you do? Would you start with 50 targets or 15? And then how many meetings did you wind up doing? 10? I'm just curious, ballpark, to get one of these late stage rounds done, what's the actual diligence process? You should le- meet at least five people, 10 people? Yeah. So we ended up meeting with eight different firms. Um, oh, and, wow. So small group. Small group. Um, but that's because you know we, we had done our research in advance of this and had built out our own like VC database. And then from there, uh, what was really fascinating is, you know, shameless plug for Loom a little bit, but after we did the initial meeting with the first two or three partners, we recorded a loom that was walking through the deck as a leave behind. And ah. we timestamped all the slides and we linked to the deck. And so we said, you can share this with your partnership. And uh, we actually, as a result of having that leave behind and it being a really expressive and intimate look into the business of loom, uh, we were actually able to skip the partner meetings and we actually wow. went straight to term sheet. So. Um, All right. How many term sheets you get? You get do eight meetings. You got eight targets. You get two or three term sheets. So you get four or five. What what is the uh, what does it look like when you get to that next level of deciding? Yeah, it it was um, you know overall. I it, term sheets are actually something that like there's the verbal and then there's actually getting a term sheet. We only sure. got a handful of term sheets, but we had gotten oh. a few more verbals than that. But got it. I mean, I think one of the best things that you can do as an entrepreneur, especially when you're starting to get to that growth stage territory and you want to build great relationships is just uh, setting proper expectations and communicating as clearly as possible. Like you don't want to lead people along. And so for us, we're like, look, there's a couple of firms that we're really excited about working with. We want to build the relationship. And so before we actually got to term sheets, we had kind of close it down. Narrowed the field as it were. Exactly. So you narrow the field and then you make a decision. And you close uh, this big round at a $320 million valuation, I understand. Congratulations on that. You're one third of the way to the unicorn status, which doesn't mean anything. uh, But uh, people will obsess over it, obviously. Um, But what I thought was interesting is usually, you know, you do a big round like this, you have a nice closing dinner, VCs come out, and they find some place with expensive wine, like, you know, Michelin starred place. Uh, and they take everybody out for, you know, $500, $1,000 a person dinner, 10 people go, they spend five, 10 grand, and uh, it's a big deal, right? And uh, everybody has a really memorable meal. But you can't do that here. So my friend, Matt Mazio, who used to work for my friend, Chris Saka. Yeah. Uh, I think Matt was uh, an intern for Chris for a while and then uh, became his partner. <laughs> and then uh, now he's at KOTU. And Matt's a really smart, considered guy. He decides that instead of a closing dinner, he's going to walk people through 36 questions that lead to love, an intimacy uh, questionnaire that I read on the New York Times. And he suggests this to you, (laughs) the 36 questions that lead to love by Daniel Jones, January 9th, 2015. You can uh, read it in the Modern Love column in the New York Times and search for it. Um, But this is... uh, To fall in love with anyone, do this, a study by psychologist Arthur Aaron and others that explores whether intimacy between two strangers can be accelerated by having them ask each other a specific series of personal questions. 36 questions in the study are broken up into three sets, with each set intended to be more probing than the previous one. Uh, The final task uh, is staring into each other's eyes for four minutes. 
with a suggested duration ranging from two to four minutes, but Miss Carton was unequivocal in a recommendation. Two minutes is just enough to be terrified, she told me, four goes really somewhere. So are you telling me, Joe, that you stared into Matt Mazio's eyes over Zoom for four minutes? Did that actually happen? No, unfortunately, okay. but I look forward to it. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> but, okay, but these questions were actually, it's like really good. Given the set one question, given the choice of anyone in the world, whom would you want as a dinner guest? Oh, I've heard that question before. Who did you answer? Who would you want? Jesus is the answer people, Bob Dylan? <laughs> I actually, my, my, grandpa, my grandpa was like my all time hero and he's no longer with us. And so if I could ah. have one more dinner with him, that's who I answered. And I, I felt okay. like that was. Pretty insightful for like, yes. uh, and, and what we actually did to share a little bit more about it is that 36 questions is a very long, like, I, I have no idea how many questions you asked this time around, but like, you know, you can maybe get the 36 questions in over the course of three hours. So we said that we were going to stay in set one and we also had five people on the call. And so like, uh, you know, we didn't get through all 36 of them, but we said that we'll get to set two and set three in the future. I like this a lot. The second question, would you like to be famous in what way? How did you answer that one, Joe? Would you like to be famous and in what way? I said that indirectly in the sense that I hope that I provide enough value to the world where I have recognition, uh -huh. but I don't want to have paparazzi in my face whenever I go out places. The good thing about building tech is like, unless you become Bezos, like that, <laughs> that's not I would like to. I would like to be more famous. I would absolutely like to be more really? famous, but Why? I would like to be famous for owning the Knicks and being the winningest owner in the NBA history. That's what I would like to be famous for. After I've become famous for being the greatest investor of all time. Those are my two goals. I love two that. goals left. I saw that tweet storm so, and I love that North Star. I just felt like, you know, people are just so unwilling to state what why they're doing what they're doing. Uh, and for people who don't know what Joe's referencing, I just pinned a tweet storm is here's my plan. I'm going to invest for 10 more years, I'm going to try to hit 150 200 investments a year, I'm going to try to hit the same track record of hitting a unicorn one every 30 40 50 60, even if it's one every 100, you should be able to get another 1500 investments in over the next 10 years, which means another 15 to 30 unicorns on top of the six or seven I have already. That would put me in the 22 to maybe even 50 unicorns yep. in, a, in a lifetime that nobody's ever done anything remotely close to that in the history of Silicon Valley, I believe, as a single GP. So that was, and, uh, you know, and then I said, the reason I want to do that is because I want to cash all those chips in and buy the Knicks when I'm <laughs> 60, 65, and then be able to have 15 years left of life, hopefully, uh, and win a championship for New York before and making a telephone call. Go ahead. I was going to say, as, as a kid who grew up in the Chicago suburbs during the Bulls heyday, so I was born in 90, yes. which means that I was yes. part of the Chicago like Bulls. And yes. I just, oh my God, I got the to Knicks watch, versus Bulls was incredible. I just got to watch The Last Dance that came out. And incredible. that is the best docu-series of sports of all time. And that's Absolutely. because I'm a Bulls fan, like an intimate Bulls fan. So you saying that you wanted to build the most winningest team with the Knicks, I, I understood exactly from like a community perspective what that would mean and, and why that's important to you. Yeah. If you want to see a really good one too, Hoop Dreams was like the original basketball uh, documentary. I don't know if you've ever seen that one. I haven't. Uh, but it's yeah, watch Hoop Dreams. It was like a sort of Sundance darling 20 years ago, uh, and just about the up and downs of sports. But man, that series, um, you know, Last Dance, I think anybody who's an entrepreneur or was a fan of sports at that time, the approach that Jordan took to winning and his desire to win 
which I think would be best described at any cost, at all cost. Um, I do not care what I knock over. We're going to win or I'm going to die trying. Is that what your big takeaway from it? Is that winning uh, solves all problems or that winning at all costs is a bad strategy because you might wind up a broken person where, you know, Jordan seems at times like a very troubled, broken person who is very emotional. I don't know if you noticed, but he cries very quickly at, you know, a tragedy or something touching that occurs. So it's obviously he's not at exact peace with his desire to win and the fallout it causes. Is that what you took away from it? Yeah, I mean, I think that anybody who has that innate fire to them, there's going to be people that don't have that match of fire. And I do think that uh, there's there's a little bit of a wake that is left behind them that in mm. that stage of life, he probably looks back and says that I could have done a little bit better in certain areas. But I don't think that a lot of times his answers were like, I don't necessarily regret it, but that doesn't mean that you can't have an emotional response to it. And so to me, mm -hmm. like one of the key things that I took away as entrepreneur, and I actually wrote up this document. So I have, I have something that's called like Joe's execute that lives in notion that has like key quotes that motivate me that have like formulas that really? I really pull like, it up. Um, and let's and make a loom out of this one. Come I, on. I can, I can pull it up right me. now and read me some of it. Let's go. We okay. have to get in there. Okay, let's so, get in there. I want to know what's in your loom, what's in your notion page. I mean, Joe's it, notion. Yeah. So I, I like there's certain things like I have four quotes at the top and I'll read them. Um, all humans are motivated to get along and get ahead. I think that that's like uh, fundamentally. All humans are meant to get along. Motiva social, motivated and, to. And mo motivated to get along and get ahead. In other words, we're aspirational and we're social creatures. 100% agree. Correct. Why is that important to you to remind yourself of that? Um, because I think that in terms of building a product like Loom, where there's an expressive component to it, but it's also for the workplace, I think that we have to acknowledge what are the fundamental motivations for building any sort of product. And so keeping things relatively simple and understanding what root motivations are can help lead to product innovation. Um, so another okay. one that Who, I have... Whose quote is that? Is that just a random quote? Actually, I, I wrote that is it because oh, I... Oh, you wrote it, okay. There was a New York Times series of articles, it was editorials that was, what does it mean to be human? And they had mm. professors, they had artists, they had business people all answer this question. Um, like Anne Wojcicki of 23andMe wrote up one of the answers to this. And so uh, I read the series of 15 articles and I tried to synthesize what the core takeaways were from that. Mm. And I found them to be really fascinating. Um, so if you have a chance, you should read those I'll 15 out, editorials. Yeah. All right. What's your second quote on the joe's notion page for life um well so this this is actually like joe's execute is largely uh, tied to ceo responsibilities but one of the ones oh. that i heard is like do the things no one but the ceo can do i think that it can mm. get hard to get lost in like the day-to-day -day operations but you kind of have to take a step back and say is there things that only i can do and that's one that i constantly remind myself of what is the what are the things that only the CEO can do in a company? Um, I think that setting the vision and mission for the company mm -hmm. is something Correct. that I do with my co-founder, Vinay. Uh, I would say recruiting a great executive team is something yep. that only the CEO can do. I think that there's editorial responsibilities where you set the execution quality bar. 
uh, is something ah. that you can actually have permeate down, but it largely is inspired by uh, the culture that you set. And then there's also how we engage with each other. As much as you like, culture is something that permeates and builds from the bottom up for sure, but it's also largely founder driven. And so Vinay and myself articulated our cultural values when we were only six team members, including three co-founders. Um, those are what the is the, if you had to describe it at its core, what is the culture that you've decided in how you work with each other, how you communicate with each other? What is that top down? Is it you drive each other, you push each other, you're cynical, you're funny. What is it? You're loving, <laughs> kumbaya, you're um, brutal like Jordan, you're serious like Jordan? I'd say ask for more is one of the most cited cultural uh -huh. values, which is like ask for more of yourself and ask for more of others. And it's also not being mm -hmm. shy to ask for help when you need it, because I think a lot of Got inefficiencies it. in a business is when you kind of feel like you need to figure it out on your own. Lead with transparency is critical um, that you should, un unless information is going to materially hurt another individual, having information open and accessible leads to trust. It leads to more efficiency uh, in terms of faster decisions, better decisions. And to me, it also is just means that um, when you're scaling as a business, like, can you actually bring folks on and they know the information that uh, they need in order to do their jobs? So lead with transparency. It's like critically important. So in a way, asking is a, is a core value, whether it's asking for help, whether it's asking people to step it up uh, yes. and then setting that quality bar. That's a very interesting one that people don't bring up. But it is true that the founder at some point says good enough or, hey, here's the quality level we're looking for. And you should really explicitly state that. And I, it's very interesting you bring this up. Um, I told my I was trying to figure out with my team how to communicate to them the standard for customer support we wanted to have at the syndicate.com, which is our angel investing syndicate. And I had gone to the Aman Hotel, A-M-A-N in Tokyo when my book came out two years ago in Tokyo and I stayed there and it's not cheap. It's like 1500 bucks a night, uh, but it is the greatest hotel in Tokyo. Uh, probably in all of Japan. And it's the greatest hotel chain in the world. It's a new kind of hotel chain that does what's called six star. You know, you've heard of four yeah, star, like of the Ritz Carlton or whatever, four seasons. Then there's like five star. And then there's just like six star. The Mon Hotel has like 40 employees for, or like it's 150 employees for 40 guest rooms or something. It's like five to one, six to one. And I said, that's the level of customer support I want. I want a Mon style. When you are at the Amon and you walk down to the front desk, there's six people there. <laughs> And one person walks up and you know what happens? Five of the people at the front desk walk up, surround the person and they make a plan there for you to go get, you know, the best tempura. And they just immediately, you know, somebody goes and gets you a, a moist towel. Somebody gets you some tea. The other person gets you uh, the menu. And, and all of a sudden you're set up in the best tempura restaurant, you know, on the outskirts of Tokyo in a townhouse, which is where we went and had the uni in shishito. No, uni in shiso leaves. That was uh, temporary for us in front of us, and it was outstanding. But anyway, that's like I think a very important. And then there might be other parts of the business where you're like, hey, yeah, in the office, good enough. Like we don't have to have like the perfect office or whatever. We yep. just need to have the perfect Amman level service, yep. you know, with the people in the syndicate. So we actually one one quote that you could potentially use with your support team that we said in the earliest day. We made our first support hire, but we were doing support ourselves as founders and. Uh, we just said support is a competitive advantage if done right. So mm, um, like, like we, we told the support team, you're actually like, you are a competitive advantage for us. And that's actually scaled to, you know, now our 10-person mm. support team. 
That's a really interesting way to look at it. You know, JetBlue looked at it that way because when I interviewed the CEO of JetBlue, when they launched the company 20 years ago, when I lived in New York, and he was out in Queens, uh, the founder, I think it was Dave Nealman. Anyway, he, um, he said that all the airlines had moved their call centers offshore to save money, Bangladesh, India, Manila, whatever. And, um, you know, people were having a hard time with... Uh, accents and just cultural references, etc. And then he decided to do $15 an hour work from home in Utah. And he found he got into the Mormon community and some other communities. And he just built this like, at the time work from home didn't exist. But he just said, we found single parents in, you know, the heartland. And we told them, stay on the phone as long as you can, because uh, we're trying to build our business through customer service. So if yeah. you get on hold at United, and then we pick up on the first one, and we're kind to you and United is, you know, rigid and cold, we just score so many points. What's the third item on the list there? Of your top four? Or are we up to four? Um, uh, for my execute? Yeah. Like the quotes? Yeah. Your, your um, execute, yeah. Yeah. So there's, I, I'll list the last two really quickly, which is take yeah. your seat as a leader, like sit royally okay. at, at as if you have every right to your role. I think one of the things that mm. a lot of founders deal with is this imposter syndrome, right? So like you, right. you're like, who, who am I to be the CEO of like a $320 million company? And so I think that constantly reminding yourself that people are looking to you, people are looking to your leadership. And so take your role, um, take your seat. I think it's something that I learned from my coach, uh, Khalid Halim, who's amazing. And then the fourth quote that I Wait, have- Wait, who's your coach? You have, an ex you have a CEO coach? Yeah, uh, his name is Khalid uh, Halim, and he huh. uh, he was. How did at, you find him? So we actually did a coach search the same way that huh. you recruit an executive, where we had talked to fifteen different coaches, and we went through like a series of interviews, and then landed on Khalid. And he was with Jerry Colonna. Um, yep. If you're, so they yeah, they good built friends out. with Jerry. I've been friends with Jerry since nineteen ninety four. So they built out Reboot together. Uh, yep, he was one right. of the co-founders. And then Khaled just broke out and started his own coaching ah. firm. What's the so his best piece of advice to you was, listen, you know, you're in the captain's seat, act like a captain. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it was something that I learned directly for, from him. I would say that, like, is it the number one thing? Uh, the most consistently valuable, for sure. But there's also been individual situations where his advice is like, insanely valuable that uh like 10x valuable but this you is had that imposter syndrome you had that where you're like hey do i deserve to be in this seat or did i just get lucky or is this just random silicon valley bullshit that i all of a sudden you know drank the kool-aid and you know now i'm on the seat and thrown and maybe i don't deserve to be here did you have those thoughts in your mind joe I, I think that it it continues to evolve over time but yeah it's huh. like you know when you work with exceptional executives that are best in class in their departments, like a VP of Eng or a VP of marketing or VP of design. And you're like, who am I as like a 28 year old to be managing uh, those that have 25, yeah. 30 years and are like the best in their, uh, their discipline. I think that that's when that quote became really valuable for me is when we brought on exceptional leaders and I had to be a relatively young CEO overseeing them. That. Yeah, that is a very weird moment in time. I know when I had my, my first magazine, Silicon Eye Reporter, and I was 27 or 28, I started to have people like Elliot Cook and Carol Martesco. And these were 40, 50 year olds working, I would always say with me, but they would say for me. And yep. they were like my support team. And they were 20 years my seniors. But, um, you know, they wanted to be part of something exciting. They wanted to be something revolutionary. And sometimes it takes a young person 
to, to start that. And, Absolutely. you know, that, that is one of the great things about youth is that you can see something and just manifest it in the world, not realizing exactly how much work it's going to be <laughs> and how hard it's going to be, like yep. a magazine. Yep. And then all of a sudden, these people come and they try to help you, right? And, and letting people help you is a big, I think that's a big unlock. That was a big unlock for me was learning how to delegate and letting people help me. Uh, because I just felt like I had to make every decision. I had to put everything on my back. And now I'm the opposite. Now I'm like, make a decision, people. Like, <laughs> yeah. And then come to me with your decision and let me know, you know, if you have any, you need any feedback on your decision, but make a goddamn decision. Okay. So take the throne, understand you're in the throne for a reason. And what's the fourth one on your execute list? Personally, thank someone every week. It's just a Aww. reminder. Yeah. And Aww. so like, um, I think that the, it becomes easy to get lost in the day to day again, but like these quotes yeah. are like, make sure that you recognize mm -hmm. someone for amazing work that they did. Well, a week is a relatively long period of time, especially when you have like a hundred folks in your team guarantee you saw something every day that you should be mm -hmm. like, that was great work. Like, thank you. Um, but a week is a guaranteed cadence that you saw something that you should thank someone for. I, you know, that is a big unlock. I had a friend, Sean Gold, still a friend, <laughs> uh, and he, uh, he would call me and I'd say, oh, what's up? Is everything okay? What do you need? And he'd be like, no, I'm just calling to check in on you. This is a relationship maintenance call. I'm driving in my car in Los Angeles. I'm stuck in traffic yep. and I haven't talked to you and I'm going down my list of friends <laughs> and just seeing who picks up the phone. And I, I like bookmark that and I was like, oh, and now when I'm driving home, you know, I'll just call Brian Alvey or Austin, you know, Capiche or just any friends who I haven't talked to in a while and just say, hey, checking in on you. How you doing? And man, people, it freaks people out a little bit when you check in on people randomly, but thanking them and showing gratitude, that's a huge unlock. Yep. Um, I started doing that in the pandemic where I would just randomly call team members or just click on that button. And I really recommend this, this ad hoc, uh, no agenda, just how are you doing call. Yep. Um, anything I can help with call and you just go into any chat room on your slack and hit the phone and it just dials everybody. And if there's 12 people in the room and four pick up success, if two, if one person picks up success, and yeah. you say, Hey, yeah. have you done that before Joe? Or are you going to uh, do it right after this? <laughs> we have, we have a channel called uh, instantaneous fun where uh, uh, usually instantaneous fun. where like somebody will drop a zoom link in there and folks will just kind of like jump in and you'll, you'll uh. have fun. My, my personally thank someone every week again, shameless plug for loom is I usually do it because I, I don't want to like interrupt their days. I'll just record a loom and send it to them and they can watch it on their time. Aww. And then they have that for all time. Imagine if Steve jobs had done that yeah. and like everybody, yeah. cause I don't think Steve jobs, I don't know if, if, if <laughs> Steve jobs was known for thanking people. I know they gave, people five and ten year certificates i think that was like <laughs> in at apple they they that that was the praise they got was the i don't know if you've ever met anybody who worked at apple but they have these certificates yeah and they, they their certificate is like anybody who worked at apple and got one of those certificates that certificate is within three feet of them when they're working yep. it is like the most meaningful thing in their lives is that certificate signed by steve jobs and whoever else signed it you know eddie q whatever yeah um, well listen so uh, one one thing that yeah. I'll just add really yeah. quickly, like you sure. said, people will revisit it. I actually, you know, one of our executives hit the one year mark um, and he's been mm. amazing because like you said, like, um, you know, he's a little bit older. He's been simultaneously like a coworker and peer and also like a mentor to me. And I mm. shared that over the a loom and he told me afterwards that he actually had his wife come and sit down and watch that with him. Mm. And so like, I, I feel like this form of like asynchronous sending it to somebody, they can revisit it over time. Yes. It becomes this like cherished memory yeah. um 
continued success for you, my friend. Uh, great job with Loom. We love the product. We use it. Uh, and uh, you're hiring right now for what positions? All what positions, but like, of course, like the, the two most important, I would say, is that um, engineers, like we have a lot of innovation to do over here. And we're also handling a scale that very few companies get to handle. So really, really interesting, hard problems to solve. And then also we're starting to bring our Loom for Teams product to market. So sales and success. And we have right. kind of like the early foundation of a team. But, you know, those that want to sell the next uh, gen workplace communication platform. Well, now's the time to get on board. It's a $320 million valuation and they'll be going public at $32 billion. So uh, there's, 100X, <laughs> there's 100X left to unlock in this bad boy. So get in there and uh, apply to a job at loom.com. Uh, great job on the pod, uh, Joe. And uh, who's, your, who's your favorite player in the league right now as we wrap up here with the NBA? Who's, who do you like oh, most? My gosh. Have a, you have, if you, or how about this? If you could build a team right now around any player for the next five years or seven, let's say seven, you got seven years window. Who do you build a team around right now? You can pick any player in the league and you get them on their, you know, seven year contract, you know, whatever that winds up being 25% of your cap hold. You can pick one player to build around for the next seven years, not two, seven. You, I mean, I know I'm in the Bay area and this might be like a little bit of a cop out, but I still feel like Stephen Curry, like he's actually the next kind of like ringleader of exceptional talent. Uh, even if yes. like he's not necessarily the like number one three point scoring mm. NBA player six, seven years from now, I do believe he has those leadership characteristics that can build mm. a championship team. And he's also had that winning. I feel like knowing what winning is, is really important too. So I'd probably build it around him. I wonder how, what is he? Is he 30 yet? He's got to be 30 right now. 29, 30. Mm. What is? Good question. Yeah. That's an interesting call. I think that's a really interesting call. So what you're saying is you might sacrifice the seventh or sixth year to go for the five great years right now, as opposed to people who might take an easy choice like Giannis or Luca uh, and build around those two supremely yes. talented individuals. Supremely Steph is 32. Talented. So you're really <laughs> getting on that train late. I like it. I like your but, call. But, but he also, he's not the type of... Um, guard that drives the lane all the time he actually has a lot right. of legs left in him because he like stayed vince on carter, the outside yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so like even better you know, than vince carter because vince carter was a yeah, dunker too well that's a derrick rose is like i thought he was the next Ugh. coming for the bulls and he just he hit the lane too hard he was too explosive and then he suffered multiple yeah, career ending injuries yeah so like i feel like steph curry actually has quite a few years left in him if he i think if he I decides think so not too. to I'm, retire uh, uh, our next book club for those people who are in this week at startup fans this week at startups.com slash slack you can sign up for our slack room it's free and then we're having a book club next month in october and the book we're doing is the hot hand um which you should totally read joe because it starts with or listen to it starts with uh the story of steph curry and his breakout game at madison square garden where he came off the bench under weird circumstances and had like a 50 somewhat point game at the garden, the Mecca of basketball. Love it's it. It's a really good book. I'm um, going to so get far. that. The hot hand. It just talks the about hot. streaks, right? And the whole controversy around streaks, but everybody goes through streaks. Uh, and they also go through film directors, like the guy who did um, the princess bride. And he did two or three other films around that same time. Rob Reiner um, had like, he had like three or four incredible huge hits uh and acclaimed films a few good men i think was the other one at that time and um 
Yeah, the Princess Bride became one of the lasting ones. Anyway, they go through that, like, everybody has that moment where they have the hot hand. And I was like, thinking about it with my angel investing, like when I had that hot hand, and I hit yeah. Uber, Thumbtack and data stacks in the first seven investments, three unicorns and seven. It's so pretty crazy. crazy run, right? Yeah, and then but I'm looking at it now. And I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna have the hot hand again, you can have multiple hot hands in a career. Totally. Uh, if you just keep if you have if you have process, right, where the I think yes. if you have to have a process. And if you focus on the process, those hot hand moments happen which is why Steph's been so good and Clay's been so good. They have a process. They're just going to keep passing that ball and sharing the ball. Yep. And then that just leads to this crazy, I don't know if you remember that time, Clay, what did he hit? 12 three-pointers or 13 three-pointers? And it was like, yeah. he dribbled three times or something insane. <laughs> Nuts. Um, Nuts. By the way, this is, this is one thing that I was going to actually loop back around to before the quotes was like one of my main takeaways from The Last Dance and Jordan was his ability to manifest that fire mm. within him before every game like they told those stories where he would make up quotes he would make up situations where somebody like yes. talked trash to him going into yep. the next game of the series and so to me i felt like one of the things when you're talking about process and continuing to show up and trying to hit that streak again i feel like artificially creating that fire within yourself yep. will force you to constantly I iterate agree on that 100%. process and, like and you keep really it hard yeah yeah, you got, you got to keep at it and you got to find some motivation. I think that's where he seemed petty at times, but you also will realize, oh, he was manifesting some competitive spirit in him and competition might be very base, low level motivation. Yeah. Like it's not like some kumbaya, save the world motivation. It's very low level, but it's also very powerful. Yeah. Uh, when you feel wronged or aggrieved, uh, like he felt by Isaiah Thomas not shaking his hand. Like he's like, I'm going to take this motivation and I am going to ruin Isaiah Thomas's life. And I'm going to become the defining moment of his career when he didn't get on the dream team. And he's like, I took that personal. <laughs> I love that <laughs> yeah. gift. I took yeah. that personal. <laughs> like, <"Ooh." laughs> you do not want Michael Jordan taking something personal. John starts no. to dunk. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, All right, Joe, continued success. Uh, everybody go work for loom.com. If you want to get your stock options now and have them hundred X, uh, that's, I'm saying that not, not Joe. You can't guarantee that, but I can guarantee it <laughs> because I'm not an investor <laughs> uh, yet. Maybe Thank I'll be an everything. investor soon. All right. Be cool, brother. Uh, stay you safe. Too. All right. See you, Jason.